On May 4, 1970, National Guardsmen in Ohio shot students at Kent State University who were protesting the Vietnam War, killing four and wounding nine. A week and a half later, members of the Mississippi Highway Patrol and Jackson City Police opened fire on students in front of a women's dormitory at Jackson State College. After a blistering 28 seconds, two young people lay dead and 12 more were injured. In the national understanding, the two events were linked as tragic outcomes of war protests. But the truth is something different. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and this podcast is made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In this episode, we talk with Nancy Bristow, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Puget Sound, she is the author of Steeped in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970 Shootings at Jackson State College, which won the Mississippi Historical Society's Prize for Best Book of 2020. John Roy Lynch was born into slavery but rose to elected office in Reconstruction-era Mississippi, serving at the state level as representative and Speaker of the House, then at the national level in Congress. How is he connected to the story you tell of the shootings at Jackson State a century later? Well, it's a, it's a strange connection, really. John R. Lynch Street is the road that ran through the middle of the Jackson State College campus in 1970. He was honored then um, to have that street named for him, but this street had become really the locus of conflict between the students on the campus and local white commuters who would then drive back and forth through the campus every day between their homes west of town and jobs in in downtown Jackson. Uh, And so over the years, um, a site that was supposed to be a site of honor had really become a site of conflict uh, by the time we get to 1970. Talk to us about the shootings that took place on the campus of Jackson State College that May night in 1970. It was actually the second night of trouble on the street on May 14th. This site that had been an ongoing um, problem for the students, what would happen is that white motorists would often slow down or stop at the stoplight that had eventually been posted on Lynch Street, and they would yell racial epithets at the students. Uh, Often they would speed through, endangering the students. And on the night of May 13th, we don't know what prompted um, the initial conflict, but at some point, students and local kids began throwing rocks at motorists, and the police were forced to close Lynch Street to essentially uh, quiet the unrest that was taking place on the evening of May 13th. But with that response of closing off Lynch Street, uh, things eventually calmed and the police left. And there was an important lesson there, which is eventually if the police would just stay off campus, things would quiet. The next day dawned quiet. It was close to graduation. So students were busy getting ready for finals, getting ready for graduation. And the president actually asked the city to close Lynch Street in anticipation of the possibility of, of another night of, of, of unrest between students and motorists. But the city refused. It was much more interested in keeping the flow of commute traffic easy. Um, but the president was right. And that evening, again, rocks were thrown and the street was closed. 
uh, a small group of young people, probably local kids, not students, but it's not definitively clear, uh, grabbed a dump truck that was parked at a nearby construction site and drove it onto the campus. And it stalled out in front of Stewart Hall on the western end of campus. Uh, and someone lit the dump truck on fire. Now, in the context of May 1970, uh, this wasn't a particularly sizable event. This would be a blip on the screen uh, in a spring that was, of course, uh, filled with a lot of conflict nationwide. Um, but the, the burning of the dump truck did bring Highway Patrol and Jackson City Police to campus because a fire truck needed to come to douse that dump truck. And so they came and the students did not interfere with the firefighters who quickly put the fire out. Um, there was still a crowd in front of this men's dorm on the western end of campus, but really it, it was relatively meaningless. Um, they hadn't caused any problem. The fire truck was allowed to come and go and to do its work without any problems. But this is what goes wrong. When the fire truck leaves, it does the right thing. It leaves campus to the west. It's going to another fire on the other end of campus, but it goes around the campus to avoid any provocation and just to, to keep things as quiet as possible. But law enforcement doesn't. They had been ordered, in fact, to leave the campus to remain on the periphery, but instead they march directly up Lynch Street where they stop in front of Alexander Hall. The students in front of Alexander Hall are there enjoying a Mississippi evening, as your listeners can imagine. It's again close to graduation. Uh, kids are hanging out. 11.30 was the, the curfew for women. So the young women are mostly inside the dorm. The young men are hanging out outside the windows, chatting away with each other and, and with people inside the dormitories. And they don't understand why there are suddenly police officers in front of the dormitory they not only have marched up, but they have now stopped in front of the dormitory, turned to face the western end of the dorm, and had their guns leveled. The students are provoked. They yell a few things, certainly. But when told to get off the street, they immediately do. They are behind a chain link fence. And then a bottle breaks on the ground near the officers. And they just open fire. And they fire for 28 seconds. They fire more than 150 rounds. There are more than 400 bullet and buckshot marks left on the outside of Alexander Hall. Two young men are dead, Philip Lafayette Gibbs, and James Earl Green, and 12 other young people are injured. Some of them inside the dormitory, in fact. Um, in the wake of that, students immediately move to help one another, to see what they can do for those who are wounded, recognize very quickly that a couple of young people are either dead or very near death. And while that is happening, the Mississippi Highway and Safety Patrol and the Jackson City Police do nothing to assist the young people. It's not until the arrival of the National Guard that any assistance will be provided to the students um, and to the, those who are injured, uh, except by the students themselves. The two people who were shot and killed Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green had compelling life stories themselves. They did, as, as young people do. These were young people in the prime of life. James Earl Green was 17 years old. He was just weeks away from graduating from high school. He loved to run track. He dreamed of being in the Olympics. He loved his classmates. He was popular. He was also the middle of nine kids. He'd been working at the local grocery or sort of like a 7-Eleven kind of store, the Wag-A-Bag, since he was 11 years old to help out with family expenses. He would provide 
uh, lunch money to his siblings. He would give money as much as his mother needed to his mother. So he was a really important member of the family. They talked about um, his caring instinct, as one sister said, his loving instinct, that no matter how down you felt, he could always lift you up. He could make a joke out of anything. So he was really a beloved kid. Uh, and he was on his way home from his job at the Wagabag that night. Um, and he had cut through the campus as he always did because it was a shortcut home. Uh, he was across the street from the dormitory, in fact. So the police had actually had to turn around away from the dormitory to fire and kill him. Mm. Uh, Philip Lafayette Gibbs, alternatively, was a student at Jackson State. He was a junior, like most of the students at Jackson State, was from Mississippi. He was from the, the town of Ripley. He was studying politics. He dreamed of being a lawyer. Uh, he was married, actually. He had a wife, Dale Gibbs. They already had a son, uh, Philip Jr., and unknown to both he and his wife, Dale, she was already pregnant with their second child, Demetrius, at the time of his death. His wife was living in Ripley um, to try to save expenses, so she was not there that night. His friends remembered Gibbs again, though, as somebody who would help anybody. Uh, one of his dear friends, Larry Breland, told me that he was a caring, sharing person. Um, his wife describes how he loved his son and, and always referred to him as man. Uh, and so again, this was someone who had family, who had friends, who had plans for the future for no reason, literally no reason, was gunned down that night by law enforcement. And then several female students were hit. Uh, there, there were, what, 400 bullets and buckshot pieces that hit Alexander Hall? That's right. So there were 12 other young people injured. Five women were hit. They were inside the dormitory at the time of the shooting. Seven other young people were outside and were hit. Fonzie Coleman was one of the most seriously injured. He was hit in the left thigh and suffered life-threatening blood loss and shock. The worst of all was Leroy Kenter, um, who suffered, I, I think, the worst injuries of those who survived. He had just dropped his girlfriend, woman who had become his wife, Belinda. He had just dropped her off at the dorm and was visiting uh, with other young people, was really just leaving uh, when the police opened fire. His femur was shattered. He spent 39 days in the hospital. He left with a rigid body cast in the midst of a hot Mississippi summer to a one-bedroom home that, of course, did not have air conditioning. He had a body cast that covered all of one leg and half of the other. He had gone to school at Jackson State, and it was a dream come true. He was studying sociology. He loved school. He was just on his way. And he's convinced that his life was, was really changed inalterably. He found it very difficult to return to school and eventually left school. And he's always talked about that his life might have been really different. He had a good life, um, but could it have been different? Uh, and also just speaks with great, I would say, eloquence, really, of, of the tragedy and the trauma that this really meant for him, for his family, and for so many others at Jackson State College. So after that shooting ends, Jackson State students stayed outside Alexander Hall all night long. And over the next days, they continued to guard the site and actually prevented the shot and scarred panels of Alexander Hall from being removed by the State Highway Patrol's crime lab. That's exactly right. They understood right away that they were at a scene, at a crime scene, and they wanted the evidence to be protected. They did not, as they say, have any faith that the very law enforcement agencies that opened fire on them could be trusted with the evidence of what they saw as their crime. Right. Uh, and so they stood outside, uh, not just that night, but literally for eight days, 
um, they protect that evidence. When uh, a court order comes down requiring them to leave, they simply burn the court order in the street and continue to hold their position in front of that dormitory. They understood that what had happened at Jackson State, that those marks were in a sense, the scars. They talked about, don't you see what they're doing? One person said, they're taking these scars away. Mm -hmm. They would not allow that to happen. And it was not until um, the removal of the evidence was overseen by the Department of Justice and the FBI uh, that they allowed those panels to be removed. And that was not until several days, more than a week later. In your book, you you find the Jackson State shootings to be a part of the long arc of state violence against Black people in the United States, particularly Mississippi. But in 1970, much of the national coverage of the shootings at Jackson State framed that in a different way. No, that's right. Uh, one of the, I think it's the second tragedy in a sense. You have the tragedy of the shooting, which comes very much from white racism. And then you have an aftermath in which the story is mistold and eventually forgotten. And again, in a way, the the victims are victimized the second time by the misremembering, the mistelling of the story. Uh, And it's mistold in a couple of different ways. If the students at Jackson State completely understood that this was a racially motivated crime, that they were assaulted because they were young black people getting an education in what was a very repressive state, the state of Mississippi, if they understood that, it was a story that many in the white community simply would not accept or could not understand. One of the storylines is that that's told by the state of Mississippi itself, which is that this was simply an incident uh, where law and order was required and shooting was somehow justified. That's one storyline. And so that storyline really has its origins reaching all the way to the top with Richard Nixon. He had been elected president in 1968 in part on a narrative of law and order, that the country was out of control and that he needed to reassert law and order. And that narrative was always a racially inflected one. He didn't say we need to contain black people, but many white voters understood that that's exactly what he was saying, that this was always language that was used to talk about reconstraining African-Americans and other people of color who had benefited enormously from the Great Society and from the civil rights legislation of mid-decade. And so one way that the story is told, and told especially in the Mississippi white press uh, and by the white leadership of the state, was a story in which the students had been out of control and they needed to be contained. They needed to be controlled. They needed to have law and order reasserted to protect the white community. The other story that gets told, and this is the one that's more complicated, but I think also very costly over the long term in terms of memory, is that it gets told as just another chapter in a conflict between the government and young protesting students. Time magazine and its coverage of the shootings at Jackson State had a headline that just, just simply said, Jackson, Kent State 2, as if this could simply be listed as another example of the same event. But this wasn't Kent State 2. Kent State had taken place on May 4th, 10 days earlier, as a result of the U.S. incursion into Cambodia. As a result of that expansion of the war in Vietnam, students on that campus had protested, and over a weekend of conflict, there was a very militarized presence there. And as people know, on Monday around noontime, the National Guard had opened fire, killing four and wounding nine. It was very clearly 
a conflict between law enforcement and students protesting the war in Vietnam. That's exactly what was taking place on that campus. That's not what happened at Jackson State College, but it's how the story was very quickly told. Ah, it's once again, law enforcement opening fire on college students. There's a generational conflict here. There's a problem with students. There's an anti-war versus the Hawks conflict going on. That's not what was taking place at Jackson State. The, the firing on the night of May 14th, 15th was absolutely and completely racially motivated and was not related to student protest over the war. It's true that there had been some unrest on the campus. It's true that there were students who opposed the war in Vietnam, but the shooting was a result of white supremacy in a way that the shootings at Kent State simply were not. Right. Gallery 7 of the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum covers 1965 to the mid-1970s, when empowerment was taking hold in black communities, spurred by successes such as the Voting Rights Act of 1965. A decade that began with the Freedom Rides and sit-ins ended with black leaders running Head Start programs and serving as members of the state legislature. But the era's success stories, such as Margaret Walker Alexander's work at Jackson State, were tempered by the murders of Vernon Damer and other activists. Learn more about the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and how to visit it at mcrm.mdah.ms.gov. The shootings, I guess, took place just a couple of miles away from the Mississippi governor's mansion, as the crow flies. And so he weighed in, John Bell Williams, on the events of that evening and sort of turned the aggressors into the victims. That's so well said. In fact, that's exactly what happens with the sort of law and order take on it is you flip the script and the victims of the shootings somehow become the aggressors and white law enforcement become the victims. And that's the way that the governor, John Bell Williams, talks about it. He takes to the airwaves in Mississippi twice, in fact, and gives major addresses describing what had taken place. And in both cases, he very carefully talks about white law enforcement as expert, as well-trained, um, as being you know, citizens um, who are there to protect other citizens. And the students instead become sort of criminalized. He talks about them as revolutionaries. He talks about people who oppose all duly constituted authority, who have disregard for the rights and properties of others. He says at one point that what had happened on campus was, quote, but one of a series of such incidents that have occurred in recent months throughout the United States. And he goes on to say, when it's reached this point in any organized society, those charged with the enforcement of its laws must act to restore order or suffer the dissolution of that society. And so you have this framing of the shootings as if there was some sort of danger to the white community, in fact, to the community as a whole, to the state, to the country, which simply wasn't the case. The Mississippi courts were involved, but there were never indictments against any of the law officers. That's exactly right. There were a number of investigations, uh, and among those were two grand juries, both a Hines County grand jury and a federal grand jury. 
both of them were complete failures. There's no other way really to talk about it. In the instructions to the jurors, it was very clearly laden with assumptions about who the students were, assumptions about what was right and what was wrong. Neither one returned indictments against anyone, law enforcement officers or any other uh, representatives of the state. And, and perhaps worst of all is that the, the federal grand jury was overseen by a man who had referred to African-Americans in his own courtroom using the most derogatory language. He had been the judge who had overturned, had turned back indictments against several of the people who were involved in the shooting during the Freedom Summer of 1964 and the murder of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. So it was a setup from the very beginning. There was no chance that justice was going to be served by either of those grand juries. Uh, and again, one more layering, I think, of the ways in which white supremacy and racism continued to victimize the young people from Jackson State College. This might be a good place to say a few words about Constance Slaughter Harvey and her role in this. She is such an important figure in all of this uh, and one of the people who dedicated years of her life to seeking justice for these young people. Uh, she had sisters at Jackson State College. She heard the shooting when it happened. She ran outside and could see that the sky was lit up. She immediately rushed to campus to see if she could be of some assistance. They would not allow her on campus. Now she was already a lawyer. Constance Slaughter Harvey was the first African-American woman to graduate from the law school at the University of Mississippi, a very important, heroic figure in the history of the state of Mississippi. And she stepped up immediately to see what she could do to support these young people. By the end of the day of May 15th, they had agreed uh, between them that she would serve as a lawyer for some of those who had been injured in the shooting. And she would, in fact, become the lead attorney as they put together a lawsuit against the state, the city, the governor, the mayor, uh, the police officers, members of the Mississippi Highway and Safety Patrol. And she would put together that case with great expertise. They put together uh, an extraordinary lawsuit, a civil suit that would take place a couple of years after the shooting. Unfortunately, by the time you get to the courtroom, they had been joined in that lawsuit by a major New York law firm. And one of the partners of that law firm would demand to make the opening arguments at that civil suit. And he would, to put it in the most polite language possible, butcher it. Um, so Constance Slaughter Harvey, for me, is one of the great heroes of what took place here. One of the figures who did everything in her power to try to get justice for these young people and who did extraordinary work as a lawyer, but who ended up being essentially silenced during the civil suit in the courtroom. And I think that that was a grave error on the part of that law firm. And it may, in the long run, have been quite costly. Uh, in any case, it was another injustice piled on top of injustices in this whole story uh, because of the great work that she did as a lawyer and then not allowing her the role she should have been playing in that courtroom. The outcome of that civil suit is one more of the tragedies, um, though they had, of course, raised a suit against the state, the city, political leadership, as well as the shooters themselves. They faced an all-white jury, and that all-white jury found for the defense for every crime that had been committed. In fact, on appeal, the students were able to win, but sovereign immunity got in the way. 
In fact, what happens is that they are told that there is no compensation because everyone who had committed these crimes were covered by sovereign immunity. And the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So in the end, there was no monetary compensation for the victims, nor was there any apology leveled. Only recently has the city of Jackson uh, apologized, which was done this past year. So in January of that year, the state's public schools had finally been forcibly desegregated. Things that had been quiet for some sections of the population could no longer be kept quiet. A, A fraught year. How did the white and black citizens of Mississippi view the shootings? Great question. They viewed it. And again, as I talk about the black and white communities, obviously, as I talk about them, it sounds like there's no variation. Of course, there's variation. There's a spectrum of choices made. But the reality is, if you look at sort of the broad broad strokes picture of what took place, the black community understood immediately that this has been a racially motivated shooting. This was not the first time that Mississippi law enforcement had mistreated African-American citizens. It wasn't even the first time they'd shot somebody connected with Jackson State College or or near Jackson State College in 1967. Ben Brown, of course, had been gunned down as well, a local civil rights activist. So for the Black community, this was an ongoing story. This wasn't something uh, that couldn't be understood. It was horrific, but it was of a pattern. Uh, And they talked about that. They wrote about that. They published stories in newspapers about that. The NAACP fundraised on that storyline. This was well understood. There would be protest efforts made by young high school students. Black residents actually conducted a boycott briefly. There was a great deal of sort of protest associated with the, the funeral of James Earl Green. So for the Black community, this was one more moment in a long history and was responded to again, with with protest and and an effort to tell the story and to tell the story truthfully. The white community was very willing to accept the kind of rhetoric that uh, was being put forward by John Bell Williams in his uh, radio addresses across the airwaves. Uh, And the white press, for instance, very quickly picks up that storyline and describes the students as criminals again and again and again using racially charged language uh, to flip the script, as I say, and to criminalize the students from Jackson State College and to valorize, in a sense, white law enforcement. Uh, letters to the editor from the white community, some of them are so ugly, it's, it's literally heartbreaking to read them. One was a simple one sentence, and it essentially congratulated law enforcement for what they'd done at Jackson State College. Um, this was a letter from a, a resident of New Orleans who had written uh, to one of the local newspapers in Jackson. So there was a real split in terms of how this event was understood. Nancy, have any of the members of the Jackson Police Department or the State Highway Patrol who over those 28 seconds fired those 150 rounds ever spoken about their actions that night, ever been interviewed? That's what's remarkable. Almost none. I was unable to locate any of the leadership. I was told by folks in Jackson that anybody who had participated was probably already dead or that they wouldn't want to speak with me. Um, I did have the opportunity to speak with one African-American member of the police force that night. Uh, He was kept on the periphery of the campus. Um, And so he was not present at the time of the shootings. Um, He was horrified by it uh, and actually believed that it could have been a planned event. He felt that he may have been kept on the edge of campus precisely because it was planned. In fact, many on the campus believed that it had been planned. Those lone officers who did speak 
to what had taken place in the years that followed. Again, it's a small handful and expressed at that time no remorse at all for what had taken place. Uh, again, these were interviews relatively soon after. And as you read the court statements, as you read the depositions, as you read the FBI interviews, again and again and again, white law enforcement simply maintained that they had done it to, to protect themselves and or to protect law and order. Again, a storyline that simply does not match the facts. In the wake of the incident, Jackson State President John Peoples canceled the remainder of the spring semester, and the seniors were unable to have a public graduation. It's exactly right. It, it, it was coming soon, and it simply didn't feel like that was something that could be conducted safely. Uh, and so the president had sent the students home, again, with the intent of keeping people as safe as possible in a very fraught environment. As we came to the 50th anniversary this spring, um, folks at the Jackson State campus, uh, members of that graduating class, a number of people had worked really hard to plan 50th anniversary events about the shootings. And that was to include, in fact, an honorary graduation for those 50th anniversary graduates. The class of 1970 was to walk across the stage this spring um, at the 2020 graduation. And at that event, the families of James Earl Green and Philip Lafayette Gibbs were also to receive honorary doctorates um, for their siblings or, or spouses or children who had died that night. Unfortunately, because of COVID-19, all of those events were canceled. And so tragically, those students who were finally to have the opportunity to graduate and walk across that stage formally, and those families and friends who are going to have an opportunity to honor the loss of Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green um, were, denied, were denied that opportunity once more. Again, the tragedy just keeps piling on. It does. It really does. That's, that's, that's right. To be clear, though, the hope is to do that. Um, and it will happen. The question is when. And it will be up to COVID-19 and the state of Mississippi to see what's possible come this May. Yes. Um, but those honorary degrees and that opportunity to walk across the stage will happen. Uh, there are too many people too dedicated to making sure that that happens yes. for that uh, to, to be permanently denied. Right, right. Nancy, it's hard in 2021 to read about this event and not think about how it echoes in present day. That is for certain. Um, and for me, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book in the first place was that this long history of state violence against people of color and especially against African-Americans hasn't stopped. It began in the era of slavery, but it never stopped. What happened at Jackson State, as I say, was part of a long arc of state violence against people of color. That arc has not reached its end. And this spring of 2020 and on through the summer and fall and into this year, many people in the country are for the first time recognizing that. I wrote this book because to know about Jackson State helps helped me understand fully that each of these shootings of an African-American citizen of this country cannot be understood as a one-off, but has to be understood as part of a long history. The problem in our country is precisely the memory we were just talking about. The black community knows that. The white community has refused to understand it. 
And as long as you can silence the stories of these shootings, one after another after another, it's possible then to say that Ahmed Arbery or George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, or that each of these is somehow something you can excuse away as an incident. Trayvon Martin should have worn a hoodie, right? Whatever it is, it's about remembering our past. And Jackson State is one part of that past. If we can know that story, know the stories that preceded it, it could help us put what's happening right now in its context. And once you do that, then you recognize the need for a real reckoning in this country around an ongoing problem of violence against Black people. The book is Steeped in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970 Shootings at Jackson State College. Nancy Bristow, thank you for being with us today. It's an honor and always a privilege. Thank you so much, Chris. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. On other episodes this season, we'll talk about the yellow fever epidemic of 1878, the desegregation of the capital city's public swimming pools, and the Civil War siege of Jackson. If you'd like to learn more about the Jackson State shootings, you can find a video of Bristow discussing the topic as part of the History is Lunch series on the Mississippi Department of Archives and History YouTube channel, Facebook page, and website. This season, our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.